Hi everyone, my name's Steve Tudor and welcome to The Friday Show. It's a show that would willingly stick its hand in a fire if you told us to. It's also the show that looks back at the past week in football from every angle, while looking ahead to what's in store this weekend. And joining me to do this is a very far-flung and very windswept Lloyd and the reassuringly close-by Howard. Good morning, gents. How are things? Morning, Steve. Or, af- or evening or afternoon. Uh, yeah, uh, evening here. Yeah. You no longer know anymore. No, do you? I'm trying to. I'm trying to recalibrate myself to your boys' time. So, where are you currently, Luke? Christchurch. Uh, driven four and a half hours today. Uh, yeah, currently east coast of the South Island in New Zealand, and it's, uh, wow, and it's eleven p.m. This is the international pod. It is after you doing one we with reach- Andrew Detmer as well. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Every corner of the globe, that's what we cover. And Howard, um, I take it you're also very far away? Yeah, sail <laughs> south of Manchester. <laughs> In his own over- head, yeah. Not overlooking yeah, the yeah. Oh, beautiful yeah. lake On or the glaciers or anything whatsoever, I'm afraid. So. Just, just well, Brooklyn's Road, a leaf blower, and endless joggers going past, so that's it, really. <laughs> but it is sunny, that, so. It's re- in such a scary climate right now with coronavirus, right, it's very reassuring to hear that a leaf blower is still about. <laughs> yeah. Well, he wears a mask anyway, so it's all right. Yeah, but won't that be a real scary thing if we do a pod in a couple of weeks and you say, oh, I haven't seen him for a couple oh, of God. weeks? <laughs> well, it's a job opportunity. But <laughs> <laughs> If you didn't see it, right, I reckon you'd get... be worried, lad. I would. Oh yeah, yeah, I would. I could see a few rogue leaves right now. That it'd be like really not seeing need. the milkman. You'd be like, "What's going on here?" <laughs> not seeing one yeah. since 1978. To be fair, so essentially this is a rom com yeah. in the making. <laughs> okay, let's jump right into it. And this week, the main talking point really is what occurred two nights ago um, at Spurs, where Eric Dyer kind of jumped into the crowd and kind of hurdled his way over all the seating to get to a fan who uh, apparently had been abusing him and then subsequently got into an altercation with Eric Dyer's younger brother. Um, Lloyd, what did you make of the situation? And, uh, well, let's start with, do you believe he should be punished for doing so? I mean, I'd like not to see him punished, to be honest, because as maybe as an action, I think... You know, football can probably say that it's probably not the right thing for him to do. And maybe as fans, we can agree that, you know, maybe he could have reacted in a better way. But from a human point of view, actually, like what he's done there, I don't really have a problem with it. Um, I can see why the authorities might slap a ban on him or, you know, might, might have a go at him. But I mean, there's a, I think the interesting thing is there's a bit of conjecture initially about whether it was, uh, to do with racial abuse of Gedson Fernandez, the uh, yeah. the Spurs midfielder, or whether it was to do with his brother, um, and then i.e. it was like a kind of personal familial dispute. And I think fundamentally, number one, I can't believe. Uh, well, I, I I think it's incredible that he's managed to hear something from the <laughs> from the crowd. That that's if you if someone's abusing his brother like twenty five rows up, the fact that he's managed to hear that. Uh, I mean, I'd like to have his ears, to be honest. Uh, maybe I need a hearing aid. Um, but two, I do think generally the principle, if people are going at your family, um, and if he has a, I mean, clearly he probably has, 
because otherwise how the hell would he be running up there? Um, then I think he's semi well within his rights to go up there and kind of impede. Yeah, okay. Maybe that's not the right reaction to run up 25 rows, but to be honest, given the modern kind of, uh, situation and atmosphere of football that we find ourselves in, I actually find it quite refreshing to see videos of Eric Dyer storming up the rows like I do to get out of the Etihad as quickly as possible when the game ends. <laughs> um, I was actually, <laughs> I thought it was great. Um, so I don't have too much of a problem with it. And maybe I'm coming at it more from a like, I don't give a fuck fan point of view, but um, yeah, I, I, I wasn't really that asked by it. And I saw a lot of people that were, well, and I was kind of like, I don't really get it. You saw a lot of people who were bothered. Yeah, or, who or, were or bothered, bothered, yeah. Being like, that's a 10 match ban. It's like, Suarez got eight for being racist to Everett, so not sure about that. Well, I don't know, because, I mean, everyone's got different timelines, of course, on the Twitter, but I was really surprised at the, the lack of condemnation, a lot of criticism for it. And, you know, some people found it funny. Some people kind of um, said, you know, good for him. Um, and there was certainly a mixed opinion, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and and I found that refreshing and I found that surprising. Um, we can certainly say that you can expect to, to face a, a misconduct charge oh, for, for sure. leaving the pitch area. Yeah, because, you, you know, players, governing bodies can't be seen to condone players doing that and going into the crowd in an aggressive manner. Um, we do need, I think so we do need the facts though. It'd be like, we need to know what happened. Like, cause exactly, if something, if something definitely. genuinely like incredibly offensive, like, i.e. racist, misogynistic, um, homophobic, you know, that level, xenophobic has been said to his brother, then, you know, I don't, think, I don't think it's excusable, but I think it's more understandable kind of situation. So without that, I think obviously we're all a bit in the dark because, as with Mourinho's interview afterwards, we're all kind of stood there thinking, you know, was this a Jetson? Oh no, it wasn't a Jetson Fernandez thing. So we, I think we need that to kind of get a bit of clarity on it. But as a, even from just from this point of view, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't really. I thought it was quite entertaining, if anything. Well, I mean, you mentioned about how you know he couldn't really be expected to hear what was said from twenty yards away in that atmosphere. Um, so the likelihood is, and you know, this is conjecture, of course, but the likelihood is that he simply saw his younger brother in an altercation with, with a, a fan. And uh, that in itself, you know, he's sticking up for his kid brother there. So that's quite an honourable thing to do. It also needs saying, as loath as I am to say, he's not the type. Because um, I hate that phrase when it's used for kind of, you know, stud raking challenges. Um, he really isn't. You know, Eric Dyer clearly, according to one and all, is a mild-mannered, laid-back guy. He's an intelligent guy. He is certainly, you know, this is very uncharacteristic of him to do so. Um, I've got a bit of a highbrow question for you, Howard. Kind of, when comparing to the reaction to kind of um, the British media and the British public to Eric Cantona, which I appreciate was different circumstances, but there are similarities, Um with people kind of finding the humour in this or finding the logic in this, and also bearing in mind as well what people are like on Twitter these days where the slightest mistake and people say, sack him. You know, if, if you're talking about someone who works in public services and, and they type something wrong, he needs to lose his job. Um, society kind of has been okay with this. What does that say to you, Howard? Does that say that society has become more reasonable 
And in this instance, would you say that society has kind of overruled the hysteria of Twitter, for example? Mm, I, I don't think you can really compare with Cantona because the key thing about Cantona and many fans, back to what he did anyway, mm. yeah, the Cantona diet is the ones you file these under, or oh, you don't want to see that. Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> Most fans absolutely <laughs> want to see this. Oh, huge. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, let's I just admit it. it. We absolutely loved seeing it. Both well, of Cantona's them. is grievous bodily harm. Yeah, but it's there's no comparison. Yeah, bordering grievous bodily harm. Yeah, but if Eric Dyer had got reached a fella, um, because you can see he's, he's always about kind of ten yards away, isn't he? Uh, until the kind of some fans kind of crowd round him, uh, and a fella gets away. So what happens if Dyer had reached a fella? That could well have you know turned yeah. into something. But he didn't, it? so we don't know. And he might just have talked yeah, to him, true. and you don't know he would have done something. So they're not really compelling yeah. for me about society. I don't think it's really. I mean, social media is the only difference that wasn't there in the can. I mean, how would that have played? How would how would that have played out on social media? Uh, Cantona at Crystal Palace. Mm. That would have been quite an interesting timeline that night. Uh, I, <laughs> first off, credit to him for doing that, wearing studs on concrete because that is quite yeah, an achievement. Absolutely. Uh, first thought I had that was yeah, yeah didn't fall over. Even, I now even struggle to get my legs over. Didn't even one. stack it as well. That is unbelievable. I know. Yeah. I can't even get my legs over one row of seats now when leaving the ground to try and gain some <laughs> extra time. So yeah, I, I don't. Basically, I would hope the FA they have to investigate and it has to be a slap on the wrist and they just go through the motions. But as it didn't reach the point where he's actually done anything that bad. I'm not really sure what he could do, and I kind of back him. Fair enough. Well, it's very subjective where the line is. Where is the line that you take crowd abuse? I don't. I don't have the answers for that. He players have to be restrained to a point, but if he's defended his family, which one of us would not do the same in that situation? I fans get away with too much for me. Not all of them, obviously, but a minority think that they're paying good money and they're watching. Multi-millionaires that gives them carte blanche to do whatever they want. Well, it doesn't. So, but as you say, there's a grey area because we don't really know what was said between the two. We don't know what fueled it, but it seems so. You just assume it was something bad to get Daya, you know, a player, someone like that, hurtling up the stadium steps. Well, and a strange choice to abuse, considering he scored the first penalty in the shootout and did all right at centre back and is playing okay. So. It just shows some fans. The fan himself couldn't wait to get out the ground once he saw Dyer hurtling towards him, <laughs> which tells you all you need to know about people like that. So, yeah. uh, I, I just hope it's swept under the carpet, gets a fine, and we move on, to be honest, because I applaud him for it. Well, you said there that you don't know where the line is and it's kind of blurred. Um, what about you, Lloyd? Where, where, where do we draw the line regarding what's acceptable when barracking a player? Um, you know, there's the obvious... Um, ones of course but beyond those um, where would you draw the line if someone's you know standing next to you for example having a go at an underperforming Manchester City player um, where's the line for you where would you say hang on you know stop that yeah well I think I've I think the line is I think the line's moving and I think the line has moved in the last few years because of one social media but I also think people are now slightly more aware and perceptive of to what they're saying and that is because of social media so I think 
I think the ultimate kind of um, bastion in this conversation actually is Raheem Sterling. And um, not only how he was treated by City fans, and, you know, I think we all know this as match-attending City fans in that, you know, you have fans behind you being like, he's shit, I told you he's shit. Well, you should never have signed him to Sterling going to every single away ground, all 19 away grounds in the Premier League, getting booed, getting called this, that and the other. Um, and I think it also pervades football. And, you know, we've got things like, you know, maybe some of the um, non-British listeners might not know, but very recently, like, there's a quite semi-famous celebrity in the UK called Caroline Flack, who used to host, like, a very famous uh, like reality TV show called Love Island, who basically committed suicide partly because of, like, basically media abuse. Um, and actually, there's now been a, a law proposed called Caroline's Law, which is basically to do with media harassment and corporate harassment from, you know, um, organisations like The Mail, like The Mirror, i.e. the same kind of corporation that targeted Sterling um, and other, you know, black footballers. And actually, I think we are getting more aware of that kind of um, media witch hunt. And that obviously, unfortunately, does pervade onto the terraces. But yeah, in terms of like what I would kind of pick out, there's been a few times where I've been at a game and I've been really close to turning around. Um, and actually, there have been a few times when I've just turned around and just full on just gone at someone, like, uh, you know, friendly fire, just gone at a City fan being like, mate, you don't know what you're fucking talking about. Like, you go like like what you guys were saying on the podcast the other day after um after the game about like you know someone saying oh I told you four four years ago that Sterling shy it's like mate he's been he's been our best player for like two years just because he missed that chance you know it doesn't mean you can just start bagging him um so I think thankfully people are a little bit more perceptive to it but I do think it's something we need to still continue to be aware of because as Howard says just because they earn lots of money doesn't mean that as a fan you have a you know you have a right to voice your opinion but it doesn't mean you have a right to uh, abuse someone and basically espouse what can sometimes be hate speech yeah it, it's I think the diary incident brings forward a lot of interesting kind of um, thoughts and discussions that need to be had um, and you know you, you mentioned Caroline Flack there and the circumstances there the awful circumstances and I think people now are becoming more aware of the consequences of these things of such negativity that is so pervasive in society and particularly on social media um but also with the Eric Dyer situation there's another consideration too which is where the, the family of the players are seated um you know with Spurs for example um I'm, I'm guessing this is the case for many other clubs the families of the players at, at away games are amongst the away fans and, you know, we all know that, you know, away fans by their nature are far more tribal, far more judgmental, far more kind of passionate than than a typical home support. Um, and so if, you're, if our team is losing, then, you know, they're subjected to all kinds of kind of um, comments made about their kind of brother or their uncle or their son or whoever it may be. I mean, I, I recall a time watching City when I said something negative about a City player Nothing too bad, I have to say. I can't recall what it was, but I'm not the type to kind of, you know, hurl anything overly critical. Um, but I basically just bemoaned um, the actions of a City player. And I vividly recall a face of someone nearby, um, this lady, who looked hurt. And I just thought, Christ, she could be the mum. <laughs> 
you know, how, how am I to know? You know, and it really kind of brought it home to me that you just got to be aware yeah. of, the, of your actions and the consequences that those actions can have. And, you know, that's how it said earlier, when people get paid good money to go into a ground, they think, oh, I've got carte blanche today. I can just, you know, take out all my frustrations from a shit week onto 11 footballers. Let rip. Yeah, and you can't, you just can't do it. We'd, it's always better. been in a, yeah, it's been an escape, hasn't it? It's been like, just look at the anger and frustration of like, always, pretty much always men. You know, at football matches down the years, it was just absolutely pent up frustration from their week, just offloading it onto footballers here for a football match they've got no say or control over. And, you know, you think of the family in that Spurs, they're probably good seats. So it's probably a corporate areas near yeah. there. So it could just be, you know, boozed up business. Groups, you know, which are often the worst type Absolutely. of people anywhere yeah. in a football ground or away from it. So, yeah, it could be, you've no idea who's really sitting there. And, uh, if they're getting corporate hospitality, they'll be worse for wear. And then they've seen the team go out the FA Cup at home to the bottom side on in a penalty shootout. Uh, it's not going to be pleasant if, you know, and you could imagine many family members, if the team's not doing that well, would, uh, would probably stop going to the matches, really, because you don't want it just be an uncomfortable uh, situation to be yeah. in. Okay, let's change tack uh, somewhat and look at Liverpool's fortunes or misfortunes over the last couple of weeks. Um, three defeats now in four games across all competitions. Now, what that's brought for me is a little bit of sympathy for Liverpool, which is something I never thought I'd say. Um, the actual fact that they've lost three times in the last four games I find absolutely hilarious, of course. But what's followed on from that is a glut of think think pieces from uh, writers downgrading the kind of, you know, elevated stature that they themselves had put Liverpool on in the first place and now saying, oh, they're, they're actually quite an ordinary team and maybe they're not great after all. And, and the reason why I bring this up is because this is what City encountered last year. Um, you know, four domestic trophies, and yet, according to many in the media, City had to win the Champions League to be considered a great side. Um, it's just moving the goalposts all the time. Um, what, how do you two feel about this? Have you seen these articles in question? The kind of, um, you know, the downgrading of Liverpool. Frankly, what they've done this season has been incredible, um, and they deserve high praise. And in my opinion, the media went above and beyond that, and now they're going the other way. Why can't why can't that balance just be struck? And you know, we just say this is a really good team. Read balance data. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. That's what it comes down to. This is yeah. just such easy copy. It's just su- <laughs> it's such easy copy. This is it not? I mean, this is just this just provides another two hundred articles for yeah. Yeah. For hits and visits to websites and print spaces covered because they've lost, you know, if they just kept winning, then it would have been the same narrative. Now they've got something different to talk about. Uh, it's, this reminds me of City, you know, discussing the anti competitiveness of the Premier League when we were, hadn't yet won our first league under Pep. This is basically, these articles are all, utterly irrelevant and pointless because the season hasn't ended yet. So how can we how can we decide the greatness of the team, which is so subjective it's impossible anyway, and how successful they've been when they've still got a Champions League to fight for? So it's utterly pointless. These are end-of-season articles, but of course we know 
you have to kill we all all of us uh you steve me all these journalists as well have to keep writing getting content out all the time so it's great now to, i mean i've seen melissa reddy she's a liverpool supporter is she yeah not? she is yeah, yeah. Writing in, the independ- yeah. Yeah. writing in the Independent that Liverpool are broken. Now, that was just a headline. I had no intention of reading the article. The article might have said nothing of the sort, because that's what headlines yeah. do. But this is just weird content, to be honest. Uh, they were go- I always said Liverpool could not... No team can maintain the results they were setting, that, that level of you know, consistency. They were going to hit a brick wall. They've hit it. You reassess it at the end of the season... You'll sit down and assess just how great that season was. But if they just win the league, it's the first league in 30 years. I think they'll still be pretty happy about that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's- to be fair, I think this is this is kind of very aside from the point that I want to make ultimately. But I think we all did say at whatever point they wobble, they will go on a bit of a wobble. Yeah. And that's just so happened to be early March instead of being what I thought, I think we all thought it would be like November, December. And they've got so deep into the season now that they've had a wobble, you know, they've lost three and four. Um, things are starting to look, you know, not great. They didn't play well against West Ham, even though they ended up winning. Alexander Arnold's starting to look spent. But they're so far ahead now that it kind of doesn't matter. Um, whereas I think we were all thinking, God, they've been winning. But, you know, I was actually looking at the stats... If they win the league this year, I think I said this on a podcast, even by January, they'd already broken the record for the most one-goal wins of a Premier League title-winning season ever. Yeah. And they'd broken that in January. They don't... don't um, already. Uh, because, honestly, Lloyd, because they, they, Lloyd, they'd never yeah. be tempted to write that and put that up on Twitter because um, I can just speak from personal experience. You get about 48 hours worth of flack from Liverpool fans who seem oh, to... It's, it's, oh, well, it's the, fa- the facts are the facts, mate. Yeah, exactly. That's what... Uh, I said that in the first ten responses, <laughs> but sorry. But, I no, the, my, my 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 wider point about Liverpool was that I think obviously they've been unbelievable and it's been crap from a city fans city fans point of view this season in in the sense that we've kind of we've held them at arm's length for the last two years, particularly last year where we literally held them by a pinky's length and still managed to keep them away and. They've really surged this year, and we've obviously, for whatever you know, for a multitude of reasons, just gone the other way slightly. But I really think Klopp had a massive opportunity for me around about December when he knew that the league was won. He still had the Carabao Cup to play for, he had the FA Cup to play for, and don't get me wrong, Pep definitely has his negatives, and we sit here on this podcast and discuss some of our um, frustrations and particularly around team selection and tactics. But the one thing that you can never bag Pep for is that pretty much every game, irrespective of the competition, he will go full strength and he'll always throw the boys out and give that game a good go. I think Klopp's missed a huge trick this season in basically throwing both of the cups. And and it's it's funny because consistently across his Four years at Liverpool, I don't think he's got past the FA Cup. I think it's the fifth round, which is yeah, the round that the they're just in. This is this the year, furthest yeah. he's ever been. I think he's ever got past. I think again, it's like the fifth round of the Carabao. And I don't know. Was he managing when we played him in the final? I can't remember. 
Probably. Uh, I can't remember how long he's been. He there. was, he Obviously, was, yeah, he was, yeah, because yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Lalana Lala got gripped by Torre, yeah, I remember that. Um, no, but I, I just think it's, it's incredible for, for him to kind of take that position when, okay, I mean, I kind of get it maybe in the first year or whatever, when you're kind of trying to figure your squad and you, you know, if you look at Liverpool's squad four years ago to what it is now, you know, it's chalk and cheese. But for him to take this approach when they're 22 points clear, I think, I think it's really poor from a fans and kind of club point of view. But equally, actually, I think Pep has shown in his time at sea that from a momentum and kind of mentality point of view, it's a huge thing to go and win and win and not just win trophies, but win games and go on runs and kind of build up that momentum. And we've done that over the last three years, hence why we've won the last three Carabas and we obviously won the FA Cup last year. And I think for them, if I was a Liverpool fan, I'd be absolutely livid the fact that he's, you know, I think he's pretty much thrown all the domestic cups every year that he's been in the competition. I think that for a manager of his stature at a club with his resources, it's just not good enough. And actually, I think it's, I think it's really hurt them and actually in a, unnecessarily so because they should have just gone at that game against Chelsea. They'd have played their full 11, played, played Allison. Okay, I understand that they might not want to, they might not want to play, um, um, Allison and might want to play Adrian. But apart from that, you know, Salah should have been playing, Mane should have been playing, you know, understand Henderson's injured, but everyone, all the boys should have been playing and, I think it's a huge, huge opportunity mess for them. And now they're on a really bad run. So, I mean, bring it on. But I think from from a kind of c- critical perspective, you've got to look at it and go, I think he's really fucked up there, Klopp. I just, I've written about this in my, my weekly thoughts blog. It's like, I, I don't understand the lack of criticism he gets yeah. from his own fans that he throws domestic cup competitions every single year. Just... And why did why would he play a stronger team for Watford than he would for Chelsea? I can only assume he's blinded by the thought of being invincibles and all the records he can get in the league. When really the focus of this week should have been the Chelsea match. Uh, the Champions League match is a good week away. He can play his strong side. They've got a week, got Bournemouth at home, I think, in the league this week. But does it matter? There's, you know. How many records does he want in the league that he's going, that he'll still throw away domestic cup competitions? Now, of course, in the Carabao Cup, he, they were, the team were in a different country and continent. Uh, but I don't think he, the previous yeah. round when he got through on penalties against Arsenal, he didn't really want to win that, to be honest. Uh, but they somehow got through. Uh, he, t- he just, he take basically, he takes, he throws away this is part of the, the discussion on greatness that he will throw away domestic cup competitions to try and win the big two the two priority ones as as much as possible and I think this brings home and brings into focus the achievement of what Pep Guardiola's done in the last two years irrelevant of what resources and what players he's got and as you see as Sheffield Wednesday it's just it's not easy it's not easy to just keep going on multiple fronts and win your games so I think there's He'll definitely have to be judged by the fact that he has only tried to compete in certain trophies during his time as manager. It's just so mad. It's just so mad, though, isn't it? Because they are in a position, hundred percent, that they have boxed the Prem. Right? They won the Champions League last year. Like they have got. A, if they'd have gone for it, they've got a free run at the domestic cups, and they could have basically this season if they really wanted to. 
rule out the Champions League. They could have tried to basically repeat our domestic trouble of last year. They had the opportunities, but they've just not done it. And I, I, it's just crazy. And, and it's not like Liverpool have a squad like Wolves where they're only using 17 senior players. You know, they've still got lots and lots of good players. It might not be as deep as cities, but to throw out, you know, some of the lineups they've thrown out, particularly, actually not even particularly in both cups. Yeah, I, I, I do look at, cause I only follow reasoned Liverpool fans that I kind of respect. And even those guys, I just don't see any of them kind of looking or turning at Klopp and, most of them are just saying, yeah, right decision, you know, biggest games at the weekend. But surely after you lose to Watford, you go, right, okay, the invincible season's over. We're still 22 points clear. We Let's go for the FA Cup. Like, let's play all the boys, you know, like Pep did against Wednesday. Okay, we didn't we didn't play great and it wasn't a 4-0 win, but we got the job done. And you know if you put a team like that out against a team like the opposition's nine times out of ten, you're going to win. So... Yeah, I've just found it really incredulous the uh, the last kind of ten days on that front. Okay, well, I mean, as you've both uh, alluded to there, um, City always plays strong teams in the domestic cups, um, and Pep just wants to win and win and win, knowing that you know it's a habit and it's a very good habit to have. Um, and we've certainly seen that in the last week with the lineups, uh, as you say, Lloyd, that he's put out at Sheffield Wednesday, um, and. You know, less surprisingly, there was a strong lineup to uh, last week at the League Cup final. Um, looking back at that game, um, where did you watch the game being down in New Zealand as you are? <laughs> oh God! So uh, the the time of the game in New Zealand was five thirty a.m. Right. So, so the good thing about the Madrid game was that that was at uh, nine a.m. here. It was at 8am UK because we're 13 hours ahead. I, I love watching football in the morning. I, I absolutely love in In the pod earlier this week, talking yeah. to Andrew, and um, and he mentioned about watching the games at kind of 10 o'clock in the morning in, in a bar. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. My oh, heaven. This is the I thing, Steve. 9am, all down for that. 5.30am, that's a bit early, mate. <laughs> oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah, so 9am was yeah, great yeah. because we phoned up the pig and whistle in Queenstown, me and Chris, uh, my mate. <laughs> being like you are showing the City game aren't you and the guy was like no it's funny you say that we've had seven separate phone calls saying oh you're showing the City game so yes we are so we were like great got there and they were serving pints at, uh, at quarter past eight so we were like right we're in here whereas for the uh, for the Villa game uh, yeah it was 5.30 so I set my alarm for 5.25 I literally just woke up found a VIP league stream watched it in my bed uh, watched the game and just fell straight back to sleep and then woke up about 10am yeah well it was far from the most glamorous uh, but I watched the full game turned the lights on to make sure that I was awake because it was still I mean it, it the sun doesn't come up in this part of the world at this time of the year until it was like quarter to eight so even by the time the game was finished it was still dark Um so- Watching the final, what particularly kind of jumped out at you? Aside from the obvious, obviously, from winning winning the thing, um, what were the highlights for you? Uh, I thought our fans looked super up from it, up for it from what I saw kind of on the screen. I thought, to be honest, um, Phil was just head and shoulders above everybody on the pitch. I thought he was next level. Um, and I'm really, really, really pleased that Pep 
started him in it because I was kind of watching like Twitter the game before and I was uh, sorry the day before and I was just thinking I'm just not going to start is he um, even though obviously you know Phil and Gossi have started in most of the lead up to both, both the domestic cups um, but he did he didn't play in his normal position but actually I thought he showed real kind of versatility and actually I thought he was super dangerous on that side you know had an ability to cut inside he was uh, linking incredibly well with the players inside, but also with Walker down the outside. Um, I thought he was, yeah, I thought he was amazing. I mean, some of his touches, you know, you guys have kind of touched on it on the previous pods, but I thought for a player of his age and like kind of game time to play with that maturity in a Wembley final and be head and shoulders, for me, the best player on the pitch, I thought was... Uh, was was really really good and that was my main takeaway because I thought generally we were pretty good on the day we stepped up when we needed to for the first half we moved it pretty well and I thought actually the shouts for Stones defending well second half were right I thought he really stepped up despite the despite the uh, the fuck up in the first half but yeah the main takeaway was that Phil turned up and he turned up in spades and he played really really well I mean that's a massive thing for us to be honest I would kind of win now act as a springboard for the rest of the season because to this point it's fair to say it's been somewhat hit and miss City season in comparison to to what what's come before it. Um, can everything get be be put back on track now? I think the UEFA announcement did that. To be honest, yeah. I look yeah. at when you know the focus has shown since then. Great show, yeah. Uh, for away games, well, Wembley's probably neutral for victories. Uh, not yeah, not blinked really. So I think the focus was there anyway. But as a player, it might be the fourth choice trophy. But you must you must get a buzz from a day like that and going up getting the trophy, the changing rooms afterwards, the celebrations. It must give you something, a spring in your step for quite a while. And they've, they've said in the past, I think Pep has players as that winning a, a trophy in February or very early March does give a boost to players. Uh, well, it's happened five times in the last seven years yeah. where League Cup winners have gone on to win. Um, another Mourinho trophy. said it. I think Ancelotti said it. Like Countless top managers have said. Yeah. It Klopp gives huge momentum. It, <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> he wouldn't know, would he? <laughs> oh, Harry, yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> Pep, Pep, I don't know, what is it? It's either 12 out of 13 or 13 out of 14 winning record in finals. Yeah, which you know he goes into a lot of finals with the better team, but that is still an amazing, an amazing uh, record, really, and shows. You know, it's not just about how well the players; it's about the whole day and how you treat the players. And Howard, can, can right I ask mood. actually? Do you know every time we've gone into a final with Pep, and I know, and the reason I ask is because I know you're of a slightly nervous disposition. Have you ever? <laughs> Me? Have you ever? Have you ever actually thought? that we wouldn't win in any of them. I know we've had different no. opponents, but have you always thought, balance of probabilities, we'd probably win this? No, it would have to be a Champions League final for me to be ultra-worried, because we've always had the better side. I got worried during the Chelsea match last year, you know, because we weren't playing that well, but, you know, in a Carabao Cup, I still want to win it, but it wouldn't have been the end of the world, it wouldn't have ruined my year if we'd lose a Carabao Cup final. I think but what I mean be... is, you know, you know, when you're in the pub before and you're like hour and a half 
out from the game. You're chatting with your mates and, you know, you're on the way to the game. You, you don't have, sometimes in certain games, it's a massive game. You have that feeling in the pit of your stomach that you're like, oh, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a tough one. It's going to be tight. I, 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 from my, from my perspective, I honestly, every time I've had Peppers manager and been in the final, I've never had that. And that, that's the same before the Chelsea game, before any of the Carabao Cup games, before the Watford game, none of them. In all the domestic cups, I've always gone into all of them thinking, and this might be, you know, pet privilege, but I've always thought, I think we'll win it, better team. Yeah, but we've always had the better team, so that helps as well. But yeah, you do trust that Pep will, you know, and yours, you, you trust with this team that if it does go wrong, that they've got the gears in them, or he'll, he's got a tweak in him. He'll move players, he'll see why it's going wrong. Uh, I think if you actually go into the match, it helps as well, because... You don't really think about the match until it starts, in a way. Uh, you know, when you're travelling, I was talking about four stops, I think, from Euston Square to Wembley, and then it's that long walk up. But, are you, you know, you're, there's diversions all the time. You, you've got the train down, you're with people, you're drinking, and it's only when the, the match starts, in a way, that you get you really think about the match because the day itself is a whole experience away from the match. Yeah, fair enough, Right, well, let's move on to uh, the Wednesday game on Wednesday. Um, and, you know, from the sublime to the, frankly, quite drab. Um, where does this rank amongst the drabbest, drabbest City games that you've seen? Um, was this in any way City's fault? Or were the Owls entirely to blame for their lack of ambition? Uh, Lloyd? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, this, because I think... I think the guys, I think Aysan and Howard summed up pretty well in that it's really difficult to get, you know, what is essentially a spectacle, which is now increasingly what football's become. It's become a, you know, an entertainment product out of one team does nothing and the other one tries to score. It's basically a training exercise where Sheffield Wednesday were basically saying, we're just not going to move until you guys put in there. And they're just camping. They're going, you know, four five one, and their and their striker is about ten yards south of the actual, you know, halfway line D, and they're just shuffling, shuffling, shuffling. And you know, I can't really blame City for that because ultimately we're trying to trying to make the way through, trying to play those intricate passes. And there were points where Aguero played a nice little free ball to, or like nicked it off to Silver, and I think. Particularly second half, you know, obviously it's been touted a lot that we had no um, shots on target in the first, but obviously naturally they tied a little bit second half. We started to move a little bit better. Quality came into it, particularly Mahrez created a lot of chances for himself with his just good skill and we didn't put them away. We did have the chances. So yeah, I think to be honest, it's pretty easy to throw the barb at City. I wouldn't. Um, I think we had a massive week. We had a massive 10 days, to be honest, leading up to this. And I think it's a little bit natural that you'll have a, a down. I don't think we really played that badly. I thought the finishing was really poor. But I think general... I Yeah, I'm pretty much what, on what Asan said the other day. I think as a team, we played quite well. We moved the ball quite well. But um, the finishing was obviously way off the mark and quite disappointing. But... I didn't come away from the game thinking, God, we stunk the place out there. I just thought, you know, we got into good positions and, you know, Silva squandered two, Mora squandered three or four. Even though Aguero scored, he could have scored two, three more. 
I mean, Raz missed a huge chance. Jesus had two. You know, with, you know, I mean, I've literally just, and I, I'm not exaggerating there, that those are the chances in the game. So it could have easily been a four or five nil game, but we didn't finish it. So yeah, it's not, it's not one of those where, um, I would particularly blame, uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't blame them. I think actually some of it's on us, but I think obviously the, the nature of the approach that they took, it did make it difficult for it to be a spectacle on TV. Well, talking about that approach, I mean, Howard, the two of you were saying before about Klopp and his approach to the FA Cup and how essentially it's nonsensical, really. You know, they're so far ahead in the league. Why not play a strong team in the FA Cup? The same could be said for Sheffield Wednesday, really, with their approach, which worked in the first half. It made sense in the first half. But as soon as they go a goal down, I mean, there's 10 minutes to go and they had five across the back with an isolated forward. Um, it doesn't matter if they lose 2-0. They're going to go out of the FA Cup regardless. Um, th- that just exasperated me, even as a City fan, kind of glad to see that, glad to see them not having a go at us. Um, did you feel the same way? Yeah, it reminded me of uh, City Madrid, semi-final of the Champions League. I I understood our cautious approach in the first leg, 0-0, but it was cautious from both teams. I understood it in the first half of the second leg, in a way. But Pellegrini's greatest crime... Uh, <laughs> as a city manager, was once was not throwing the kitchen sink at Madrid in the last twenty minutes because what have you got to lose then? Yeah, nothing. Lose three nil, lose four nil. Who cares? Just you know, just go for it. This is your chance to get to Champions League, and we rare, we barely even threw a punch, let alone landed one. And with Sheffield Wednesday, I fully understand it. He, uh, did he have to make changes where they're like they're marooned in the middle and they're in poor form? So, yeah, yeah. Could they go down? Not really. They've got a 10 point buffer, but they're in very poor form. Maybe it can happen. Teams can just go down and down and down. They're only nearer to the playoffs at eight points. So they're kind of in no man's land. Made a few changes. Probably didn't have to. I understand the approach, but I utterly I agree. They didn't want to be thrashed. And if they played open, they would have been picked off at will by City. But with, as you say, I fully agree, with 15, 20 minutes to go, losing 3-0 wouldn't have been embarrassing for them. Uh, just go for it. Just yeah, just get some men down the, the flanks. Just get, you know, push about 10 yards further up the pitch. Just have a go. You might, you know, you could have, you just don't know what would have happened. So really not to change. I didn't really see any change of tactics from Monk. Uh, so, yeah, I, I found it surprising that, on a you know big occasion on TV that they didn't think that because they you know they were with within touch for the whole match that they didn't use that opportunity to to see if they could do something special near the end. Well, I mean, you said there's big occasion on the TV. I mean, that's a, a significant factor. You know, we're a championship club. I know we're a, a huge club, Sheffield Wednesday, but they've been in the championship now in the third tier for quite some time, and and we're, we're on terrestrial telly. You know, this is a great chance to kind of promote themselves. Um. And they spectacularly failed to do so. You know, I was talking to my dad yesterday, um, who kind of just half follows football these days. He used to be obsessed for years, and now he's just, you know. Um, and he just couldn't get over how poor Wednesday were. When, in reality, they weren't poor. It's not that they played badly. They just didn't offer anything. They had no ambition. They were just, you know, kind of looking purely to nullify City, which, again, makes sense, you know, in the opening hour, very much less so in the last half hour. Um, 
And and what really struck me as well is in that last half hour, if Wednesday just, you know, strung three or four passes together, the reaction from the fans, I mean, they were desperate for anything to, to, to kind of cling on for and, and cheer for and kind of inspire. And they, they were deprived that opportunity in an FA Cup game against the league champions. And uh, Monk has to take a lot of res- responsibility for that. I, I just thought that was negligent, to be honest. Um, so let's look ahead anyway, instead of looking back. And this weekend, there's a small matter of a Manchester derby to consider. But before we do so, there's a, another fixture, which this week will be our fixture in focus. Um, Chelsea v Everton. Um, quite a fascinating tie. The Toffees were unfortunate away to Arsenal uh, the game before last uh, and just created all kinds of chances but didn't take them. Um, can you say the same thing possibly happening again here, Lloyd? Um, will Everton ever have a, a real reliable striker who can kind of get 20 goals a season and, and kind of push them on? Uh, particularly in games like this, really, where, you know, away from home against a traditional top six side... When the chances come, you've got to put them away, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. And to be fair, I think they've got a top-class front three forward in Richardson. Whether he's a number nine, I think that's up for debate. But I think he's a top player, Richardson. I I watch him, and have watched him for the last you know two three years, and I I always think he's pretty decent. You know, he scores. Scores a variety of goals. He's very good in the air, um, and he's someone that you know. I'm not saying I take him at City, but like you know, I don't think he's miles away from being at like a top four club. Um, but yeah, I was fans listening. are going to hate you for that. <laughs> what I mean, I'm trying to pinch him, or I'm no, no, but, me, but, you've, but you've talked him down. But like, you know, you said you know he might just be able to play at a top four club. They are kind of absolutely insistent that he is undervalued across football. Um, he might, you know, when, I mean, he might be. To be fair, does he receive the service that he probably deserves? No. Mm-hmm. And his record for Brazil actually is very good. So yeah. that actually, that gives actually quite a nice kind of um, idea of maybe what the kind of football he could be in, like a maybe a slightly better team. Um, but when I was listening to the... Uh, to five live before they were saying that apparently Everton haven't won at Chelsea since 1994 right when uh, when Ferguson last scored uh, which is a very long time ago however if Everton win it'll be the first time they've beaten Chelsea three times in a row in Premier League era because they've won the last two obviously playing both at Goodison I imagine um, somehow given the fixtures but yeah um, I think I think it's fascinating. I think it's a real shame that um, I can't remember the name of the ref, but gave uh, Carlo a, a red card for basically nothing. Uh, yeah. Apart from him wanting to steal the show, which is obviously what a lot of fans get annoyed with refs about. Um, I mean, Ancelotti. If you literally, I mean, everyone can find it very quickly on Twitter. There's literally a video of him kind of coming to talk to the ref about the decisions during the game and the ref just basically sends him off after he utters about two sentences. Was it Chris uh, Kavanaugh? That sounds about right, yeah. He's got like dark yeah. dark hair, shit quiff, bit like me. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, that, I was just 
it's really annoying actually because it's kind of robbed. I didn't realise that Ancelotti hadn't been back to Stamford Bridge since 2007, which sounds ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, go on. When I was away, but is he? So it's a touchline ban, is it at Chelsea? But he's able to sit in the stands. He got given a red card, uh, which I've not really seen happen before. Uh, we've mm. seen like Pep and Klopp and whoever booked. I think it means he's got at least this game no involvement with the players. I, I think he can speak to his coaching staff. Right, during, so it's like a Mourinho during half time, of, but he's like right. he's up in he's up in the stands for the whole game. Yeah, um, which is I think is a real shame actually because yeah, as I said. Apparently, Ancelotti hasn't been back to Stamford Bridge since 2007. Uh, yeah. 2006 being obviously the year that they won the league with the highest points total just behind Conte and then um, Pep and then potentially Klopp if he wins it this year. Um, and yeah, obviously Everton have been much improved since he's come in. So I think that's kind of robbed it a little bit of its, uh, of its magic, actually. Well, Howard... I was looking at kind of Everton's forward line before because, you know, my take on it basically is they haven't had a striker who scored 20 plus goals a season since Lukaku. Since the Belgium's left, he finished just above mid-table each season. Those things are not unrelated in my opinion. You know, a top-class striker would really kick them on and get them challenging for the top six. But I was really surprised really at the amount of goals Richardson and Calvert-Lewin scored this season. There's 23 league goals between them, um, which is a perfectly decent tally. Then you start looking beyond those two and it's Nias and it's Walcott and it's Awobi and it's Keane and they've got four goals between them. Um, How many is it each, Steve, between the two of them? Uh, it's 10 for Richardson, 13 for Calvert-Lewin. 13's a pre... It is, it is. He's, yeah, he's really pretty. kicked on under Ancelotti, uh, Calvert-Lewin. He, you know, he, there's a great deal of hope there but beyond the two of them, when you look at, say, Burnley, they've got Jay Rodriguez Look at Sheffield United, they've got Billy Sharp. You know, these players as backup strikers. Um, both clubs are above Everton. Both clubs have less resources than Everton. Um, they, they need a striker this summer, don't they? You could say they need midfielders to start scoring goals as well. That's true, yeah. That's not bad for the two of them. And, you know, a successful team needs the goals spread around. Uh, you know, we've discussed someone like Brighton struggling at the other end last week that similar thing you've got someone on eight goals and then you've got second loads of you know three players on three goals uh it, of course both teams I mean I like Giroud I do like him but he's not going to get you 25 30 goals I think both teams need a top class striker and that is, will be a, a you know an absolute necessity for them in the summer uh you know obviously they've got Tosser in and he's Went on loan, obviously scored against City and no one else. <laughs> and he's now out for six months, so you know, but wasn't doing it anyway. No. So yeah, they'll they'll look again, they do struggle. Lukaku apart, they have struggled. It's not it's obviously not easy to find a top yeah, yeah, striker unless you are one of the premier clubs in the world who can throw a hundred million plus at it. So yeah, easier said than done. But really, you've got They've bought so many midfielders, Everton, over the past few years, you know, for good fees. It's surprising that they're just, it's just a pedestrian midfield that really doesn't, doesn't provide, you know, they've got to be, they've got to supply some goals as well. It cannot just be on the strikers. 
So Goodson, Schneidlin, uh, and the two of them individually, you know, you can make a case that they were very wise, sensible signings at the time, but they've both proven to be such failures, disappointments, uh, particularly Schneidlin. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I agree. I, I think it, the problem lies within their midfield. I think there'll be an overhaul of that area this summer. Um, you, you do feel that Ancelotti, you know, knows his way around the transfer market and knows a good player from a bad one. Um, and you'd expect Everton to kick on. Having said that, we've said that pretty much every year now <laughs> for the past kind of five, six years. So, um, okay. So just end on, on Chelsea Everton, uh, Lloyd, uh, score prediction. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to go two one Chelsea. I think, um, it's quite weird seeing those images of Abraham, uh, supposedly won Premier League player of the year, but obviously it's actually just the London, Player of the year, but yeah, I think um, they're now five points ahead of of Spurs. I think Mourinho's going into typical Mourinho meltdown, and uh, yeah, given that um, it's at Stamford Bridge, I would imagine off the back of the Liverpool result that I think Chelsea will come through hot. Okay, Howard. Yeah, well, the problem is the Stamford Bridge record is appalling. Um, yeah, we create lots or, of chances, don't they, Chelsea? But we just can't convert. Yeah. But I'm still going to agree with Lloyd too on that maybe, maybe that Liverpool result will turn a corner. So enough during the game. You know, they've got good players. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to go for Chelsea to to squeeze through on this one for the same score, I'm afraid. Well, I, I know a lot of Evertonians got a lot of blue nose mates and they're just sick and tired of having these kind of valiant failures uh, in London. So I'm going to say 3 1 Everton. This is going to be their day. Okay, well, the other big game on that afternoon, um, arguably slightly bigger for us, perhaps, um, and in general, <laughs> um, Manchester United against Manchester City at Old Trafford. Um, we were going to ask for, for lineup predictions, but really, we'd expect Phil Foden to start. Is that is that correct? That's surely a question for Lloyd. Uh, I think the fact that. Kev, I would imagine he'd have started against Chef, right? Given what's happened to Kev, I think Asan was right actually in his hypothesis that they've probably looked at that and gone, mm, right, we're not playing De Bruyne. Mm, let's hold, let's hold Foden back. And I think for them to do that, for me, probably signals that he will play. Um. Not saying it's nailed on because I mean, who can predict a Pep Guardiola team? I mean, we've all fallen foul of that. But I would imagine, given that uh, the Prem is obviously now potentially our least important competition of the year, that um, that given given how well given how well Foden has played, I think I think he's well in line for a start. I also think actually. And Pep has spoken about this. Foden struggles to play two games in a week. And actually, generally when he plays, he gets subbed. So when he's even, he's started not very often, but when he started against Arsenal and when he started against Spurs last year, and I can't remember the other game that he started this year and he started against Cardiff last year, he always gets subbed at 60 minutes. Whereas against, um, uh, against Villa at, um, at the weekend in the Carabao he was the best player on the pitch so Pep was like I'm not taking him off played full 90 minutes and he 
he was incredible first half waned a little bit second because I just think he just doesn't have that automation of minutes in his legs you know used to play 90 every week a bit like Sterling is or whoever that actually maybe even irrespective of whether he was going to play against um, United the medical staff probably looked at him and gone I probably can't start again against Sheffield United uh, Sheffield Wednesday that's, that's, I mean that's pure guesswork to be honest for my part but I yeah, I would expect that he plays. Whether he plays, to be honest, I actually think given how well he played on the right, I would imagine actually he's more likely to play in that position than he is centrally uh, against United. Um, I think it's probably unlikely that we'll see um, David Silva in there given that he played 90. I imagine we'll have Rodri, Gundogan and if De Bruyne is fit, probably De Bruyne, um, which would mean maybe Foden out wide and Raz on the other side but to be honest I could see if Foden's uh, if, if KDB is not fit Foden there Raz and Mares, and then one of Aguero or Jesus up front I could fully see that uh, so yeah I think obviously it rests a little bit on Kev and I think the whole thing really rests on Kev because it's really up to them whether they think if he's ready I'm sure they think they'll play him if they think there's any doubt I would imagine they would just go there's no point, lads. I mean, it's great. it'd be great to beat United, but in the grand schemes, what's what's the bigger, bigger game? But no, I, I do. I would expect at this point, I would if Foden wasn't on the team sheet from where I'm sat right now, I would be surprised and annoyed. Okay, well, Steve, can I ask yeah. you? Yeah. Does this feel not like a big game like it used to be the derby? Obviously, the one in last year it was huge for City. Huge. Uh, but when there's little on the line like this, does it still have the feeling of a derby day or derby week? Or is there just a lot more for teams to think about, worry about, and other things going on nowadays that it doesn't have the appeal that it used to? Yeah, I think that's been the case for some time. Um, when watching United last night against Derby, um, you know, obviously I, I was somewhat disappointed to see them prevail. And then I thought, well, actually, that increases the chances of, of an FA Cup final, maybe further down the line, you know, between City United, which I've always dreamt about. I've always wanted a cup final against United, um, because we're the better team and, you know, the likelihood is we'll, we'll prevail. So, and then I had to catch myself and think, well, hang on a minute, we're playing him on Sunday. You know, it's, it's, I didn't forget, obviously, we're playing on Sunday, but there's me kind of fantasizing about this big derby when we've, you know, theoretically got a big derby on Sunday. But it's not a big derby anymore, is it? It's just, for me personally, um, I want payback because they've got the better of us this season, um, apart from the, in the first leg, League Cup. Um, so that's first and foremost, I want payback. I want it to kind of shut them up because they start to feel that they're, you know, back because they've signed a solitary uh, player who knows what he's doing. Uh, who's been the new Paul Scholes uh, and Kevin De Bruyne rolled into one after, what, five games. So I want to shut them up. And, you know, there's always a good possibility that we could do what we've done in the past. You know, I'm not suggesting a 6-1, but a nice, comfortable 3-0 like we've done a couple of times. Um, outplay them, put them in their place. That's always extremely satisfying. But, yeah, that, that frisson that kind of bristle, that vote of nerves particularly. I don't, I'm not feeling nervous about Sunday. Will they be there on the day though? Yeah, just in the build-up. But it'll be almost like, I'm comparing to recent derbies anyway. Um, in recent derbies, 
I woke up, it's like, right, Derby Day, great. And it's almost like I'm manufacturing the, the, the kind of, you know, the, the feelings that I used to get so kind of, you know, strongly. And then it kicks in. Of course it does, with a couple of hours to go. But, God, it used to be where it, it would dominate my whole thinking for the whole week leading up to it. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. So, uh, yeah, it has lessened now. Uh, and I do have to say, compare, uh, you know, Sunday's game to us playing Liverpool, I, I put more thought, more nerves, more kind of passion into the Liverpool game than I would against United. Yeah. I wonder if it's been diluted a bit by the fact that we did play him twice in the Cup as well. So it's not just your two games a season, it's it's four. And yeah. as you say, a possibility. I mean, we're far away from that at the moment. But it's possible of a fifth. So... You know, the more you play someone, the less important perhaps each individual one becomes. Uh, but as you say, the league don't matter to us. So you know the the contrast between this and the running last year, where I could barely eat <laughs> on yeah, the day, yeah, yeah. is it's very stark. But for them, it's quite important. And I think for I think for City, it's more troublesome because they have the. The shell now of a semi-decent side, not not our side, not a champ, not a league-winning side, but they're getting some competence together. So, uh, but cities, do you think it's weird? I, just, I don't know why I'm asking the questions. I just find it, <laughs> it's just such, it's been such a weird was. derby where the away. I know yeah. it's where no, it's just where the away team has been so dominant in the yeah. In so Dun- I think Duncan Alexander just said defi- on the Totally Football Show that if City win. This game at Old Trafford will be the first time there have been four, four City wins on the bounce away at United since, I think it was like 1904 or something. It was like ages ago. Like ages ago. What, what a team we had back then yeah. as well. Well, so, so, so Lloyd though, you know, United are sort of in the, within their kind of, you know, definition, not ours. Um, they are in the ascendancy. Yeah. They've had some good results yeah. recently. Um, they haven't lost in a league in four games. They've had a good result in the Europa. You know, straightforward thrashing of Bruges, three uh, 0 against Derby. The performances have picked up. Um, what worries you about Sunday? What, what in particular about this United team right now that, that, that bothers you? Not a great deal, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. no. I, I mean, I, I don't look at them and think, "Fucking hell." They're really bringing it hot. Um, you know, I think obviously Fernandez made a difference, and I think that's natural given that, you know, clearly he's a player that, you know, was touted not just by United, but by a lot of the big clubs in Europe. And I think you only need to actually, with a player like him, you only need to actually watch the highlights of his like last five games at United to realise that he's actually added a lot to them. And if you need to watch him 90 minutes, you just watch. You know, we, and by that I mean we've all watched United for 90 minutes for the last 18 months and you look at what they're missing. And I think what I mean by that is you watch, you watch Fernandez in little highlight packages and even though you don't see his whole game, I think you can kind of understand what he's kind of bringing to that United side and that even in a little two, three minute kind of um, excerpt, that's kind of exactly what they've been missing. That's kind of what they wanted Jesse Lingard to be, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that they persisted with Lingard, um, you know, in such an awful year for him, that's a, a really 
you know, a huge contributing factor, I think, to their Oh, flaws. exactly. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, fantastic that he went all the way through 2019 without a goal or an assist. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I won't recount my almond croissant story with him. But, um, yeah, no, so I think looking at them generally, I think actually being completely objective, they've probably done okay given that Rashford and Pogba have been out for so long and that they've been holding the team a little bit up with strings and that realistically they're probably their two best players. But ultimately, United as a team in terms of who we're facing off against, they don't they don't worry me at all. Like, you know, they're shit. Uh, they've got some decent players. They could probably beat you on their day. Um, got some good battlers. You know, I think Fred's come to the fore this season. I think Brandon Williams has shown that he's, you know, a good footballer and a good defender. I think Maguire can play well. I think Baye actually in recent weeks has looked really good, to be fair. But ultimately... I'd 100% back us to be him every time, but it's just a bit worrying that we've played three against them this season we've already lost two. So we need to um, realign that and bring it back down to 2-2 and then hopefully beat them in the cup to make it 3-2. Howard, um, what strikes me about United in, in recent weeks is, you know, everyone's attributing it to Bruno Fernandes and, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. But that's mainly because... You know, of what he brings to the team, he's actually linking up well in, in the final third. He's always looks forward with his passing. Um, he's always looking to create something, and that really can be said for the whole United team now. That they start to look a lot more forward thinking, a lot more ambitious, a lot more kind of confident going forward. Yet, any joy that United have had against City, they've basically just you know sat deep and hit us on the counter. So, uh kind of Solskjaer's in an unusual position now thinking well wait a minute you know in the last four or five weeks this transformation of ours has come about from playing one way and yet to play uh, City we now have to go back and play in the way that kind of worked against City but didn't elsewhere so where do you think he'll kind of lean there? Well being the home side doing the counter will be obviously getting us on the counter will be harder and it's harder without Rashford as well Yeah, uh, who's better than Martial in my opinion even though Martial has Daniel James injured as well. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. True. Don't know if you've mentioned. Do you mention Wan Bissaka's out? I think. Uh, do you say Maguire's had a bug? It's reported different things. He had, well, not the coronavirus. He had a bug, and someone else said he had a knock. Uh, different reporters last night. So he's. He, I heard he had too many coronas. Yeah. He <laughs> might, well, they need the sales at the moment. His, his head is that big that he can actually contain the entire coronavirus worldwide, <laughs> just in his skull. I'm not one to talk on that front, Steve. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I, I stay on radio. Uh, he'll, he'll be a big loss. That, you know, if he's out, Wan-Bissaka, I don't know who the backup is at right back. Uh, Mar- Dalot. Uh, yeah, yeah, how will they play? He'll he'll have to be a bit more... Probably pro- Brandon Williams, to be fair. Uh, he'll have to be a bit more proactive, yeah. And it, it could play into City's hands, but it really is the unknown because the, the results... The results haven't. There's been no logic. I think at the time we could have won the league, and we should have been about eight nil up at half time. Yeah. How on earth did we concede three in the second half? Like I say, I how want did we back. lose one nil at home in the second leg of the Carabao Cup? It's <laughs> like how will will we go with uh, no strikers again and bamboozle them that way? You just there's so many unknowns about what Pep would do, yeah, and how Solskjaer will will use Fernandez in this side, and who's going to be in and who's going to be out. That it is, uh, yeah. It's it's 
City will still battle a better side. That's all I know. Uh, and if if Ole comes out and he has to show some ambi- some ambition, surely during this game, then it may come down to City being more ruthless than they have been in previous weeks because I'm sure that the the, uh, the chances will come. Yeah. That, that sounds dangerously optimistic for you ahead of a derby. What on earth is going on? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's the fact that... It's the sunshine. I just think of some of the pressure of 2012 and last year's that... This it, Friday, however. Th- this is a, yeah, this is, this is a walk in the park compared to some of the derbies we've had in the past. You know, just think what's been at stake. Well, that even, the Ca- me- even the Carabao Cup meant, you know, had more at stake than this, in a way. Yeah. Uh, and we've had the tight... Our title won in last season, the 2012 the semi-final. You just, yeah, you know, maybe just the ones that don't mean that much. You can be a bit more relaxed about it, but it's only Friday. So I'm quite good at not thinking about derbies until the day itself. Now, well, so you mentioned in those games there, um, and that brings us neatly to a good way to end the pod, which is our favourite memory of City at Old Trafford. Um, like you say, there's been some huge games there down the years. Um, Lloyd, what, what's your particularly kind of standout moment or, or game? So I'd like to doff cap to the six one. Yeah, obviously that was great. Yeah, I, but that's I've, not that's not in my. I've, uh, I've just, that's not my. You can't one. see me, but I've just saluted that too. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers, cheers, mate. Took the half. Right? <laughs> um, so my uh, funny moment. Or almost banter moment was when Hatton Trebelsi scored that screamer out of nowhere. I loved that. Got off my seat for that. Uh, it meant nothing, but it was it was great. My my genuine favourite moment at Old Trafford was when Aguero scored that goal where he ran from the left yeah, yeah. top hand side of the box to the almost bottom right, put it top right, and it was the. Um, it was the incarnation of the Phil Jones face. <laughs> yeah. And it was also one of the best goals I've ever seen. De Gea at that point was actually at his best and he rifled it top right. And I've, I've honestly never seen a goal like it. It was an unbelievable goal. He took about four or five players with him. Uh, De Gea had no chance. He smoked it top right. And also it's, it's given us that, <laughs> you know, that beautiful meme that is Phil Jones. So not only for, the main factor but also just for the pure quality of the goal I, I mean uh, actually in the um, in All or Nothing they talk about Aguero saying that he doesn't care actually about how much he's off balance and uh, whether or not he's going to fall over or whatever he concentrates solely on hitting the ball in the direct centre so that it gets into the best position to go into the goal and I think that was a perfect example of that in that he was completely falling over but he got the perfect shot away in a very difficult position and what a goal it was and yeah that was that's probably my favourite Old Trafford moment I, I, that was an incredible goal and a great moment yeah it's a great shot and I was going to mention there about his body posture on, on the actual execution of his shot um, you know because as, as you said he was losing his balance and so that photo you know not only have you got Phil Jones uh, looking like Beaker but you oh, 50 years time that is folklore yeah yeah, and, and, and Aguero's kind of body posture taking a shot, it's just so bizarre, isn't it? The way he's leaning over it, and yet it's, he gets so much power into it. Uh, from As you said, striking, just concentrating on striking the centre of the ball. Um, for me, just, just to kind of, as an aside, I think Aguero is the best striker in modern times 
to kind of show videos to to kids who want to be you know a forward for their kind of local team. Uh, I think you can look around at players who are certainly yeah. of his ilk. You know, you can like look at Thierry Henry, but really, what's a kid going to learn from Henry? You know what I mean? He's such the flair and the exhibitionism and and everything else. Whereas Aguero, okay, the way he kind of c- commits, uh, you know, executes his his craft is done kind of you know in a, in a, such a superb fashion. But at heart. It's all textbook, isn't it? It's it's stuff that kids should watch and learn from the movement, just the things he prioritizes, um, the, the way you know shooting early. Yeah, yeah, the way he gets away. Exactly, yeah, perfect example. Um, the way he really doesn't care about aesthetics. It's all about getting that ball in, in the net. So um, yeah, I, I think he is the perfect strike. If I had a, if I had a you know a ten year old son who wanted to play centre forward for his team, I would just sit him down and just watch. What, you know, make him watch goal after goal of Sergio Aguero because he would learn so much. Um, so, Howard, what's your favourite Old Trafford memory? Yeah, we can't get past a 6 1 because I think by the six goal went, time the six goal went in, I was actually just laughing. Are you going for that as a whole or was there a particular moment that. I'll stood give. Out? Oh, no, just. Yeah, all right, my moment is. I've got another one as well because yeah, the sixth one's a bit obvious in a way. Mancini laughing, <laughs> on, giggling, and I was at the same time just at the ridiculousness of it yeah. at the end. So I would say in, injury Jeff time. I would say injury yeah. time of the matches. You know the little snippet of greatness. I, I could even go that Carabao Cup first half that was so one sided. I was almost embarrassed for United, but I think the other one would be the first goal. When we won, I think it was three 0 When we scored after about a minute, uh, yeah, did Nazareth hit it against the post? Jacko and Jacko it, followed yeah. up, yeah, Jacko and that, happened, that yeah. was already our second chance at the match. I think, and it was just like, yeah, we're so much better than them. <laughs> we've, we've just got out on the pitch, absolutely bombarded them for a minute, and scored already. And it was just so one sided that night. And that, yeah, to score that early in a match was just brilliant. It just took what a better way to calm the nerves and to to take the lead within a minute or so. Well, I've got two. Um, one's a moment from the six-one, which is the way I was me shirt, because um, I watched that in a pub, and there was like you know a lot of reds in there, and they laughed. You know, we'd just seen their team concede to City, but you know Mario just putting that kind of you know revealing that t-shirt, uh, given what had happened with the fireworks so recently, etc. Um, and and they just laughed, and I thought, oh, we've just got a legend here. Mario Balotelli and sadly it didn't transpire to be the case further down the line uh, and he moved on shortly after but at that time that was a complete package you know a, a, a nonchalant finish um, turn around just looking like a beautiful black Cantona just kind of standing there you know iconic instantly iconic with that t-shirt and best of all knowing he was instantly Very. iconic um, I loved that moment um, but my favourite moment really um Above all else, was Ian Brightwell's goal in 1990. Um, I can't remember if it was equaliser or if we went ahead. The game finished 1-1 anyway. Um, early in 1990, maybe Feb, March. Um, I was 15 and it was limbs. Just absolute limbs everywhere. Um, an absolute screamer, uh, which was heading right towards me. If if a goal wasn't there, if, if the railings weren't there, it would have smacked me right in the chops. Uh, so I just had the perfect view of his 25-yarder beating Jim Layton. Um, so that's my favourite Old Trafford memory. And just a, 
a, a weird thing which pops up on Twitter now and again from people who were in that area at the time, you know, kind of around me. Jim Layton got his full hand to that. And yet when you watch it on the telly, it looks like he doesn't. And it's weird. <laughs> only a few only a few people listening to this will know what I'm talking about. But honestly, if you were in the away end that day, Leighton got his fingertips to that, that shot. And yet, you know, every angle, camera angle, shows that he didn't. So, uh, I don't... It, it's a weird Twilight Zone thing. Um, it's, maybe his gloves were too big. It? Yeah, it's... It, it, it just flapped straight through them. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it, his fingers leant back, and, and the, the ball was so... You know, the, the shot was so powerful it went through, but... Um, it, it kind of brought it home to me the difference of watching a game on telly to watching it live. Um, you know, you do pick things up live that you just, you know, get completely missed on the television. Um, and that kind of brought it home to me. But yeah, what a, what a day that was. And we've certainly had some great days at Old Trafford. Anyway, looking back through the whole kind of collection of them, um, I've had to write about it this week. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, and let's hope there's another memorable day ahead this Sunday. Until we do, though, thank you very much for joining us today from the other side of the world, Lloyd. Hey, hey, Steve. Here's to another one this weekend. Yeah, and thank you once again, Howard. Yeah, pleasure as always. And look around, guys, on the uh, Night 320 platform. There's loads of blogs, there's loads of pods, there's terrific content from a number of different people. Just, It's worth exploring, trust me. Um, and in the meantime, have a great weekend, everyone. Settled by a derby win, no doubt. And up the blues.